Let me invite you to remain standing out of hope of hearing God's life-giving word in turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 9 is where we are going to be together this morning. If you don't happen to have a Bible, it would be useful to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together so you can grab one of the blue Bibles that should be in a chair back near you and turn to page 866 is where we are going to be. So recorded before us this morning is Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000 gathered around Him. It is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels we have in our Bible which does signal for us something of its significance that I hope we will see together as we study the text, which is Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. So let me get us going by just reading our passage, and then I want to pray briefly for God to bless our study, and then we will begin. So let us hear now, for God is speaking to us through His Word. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And the apostles departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see Jesus. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And Jesus took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to Jesus, Send the crowd away and go into the surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place." But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. And Redeemer Church, what do we believe about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray once again. Father, we do come to you now, confessing that you alone have the words of life. So we pray that you would feed us by your word and spirit this morning, that you would nourish our souls in the truth of Jesus Christ. So help us to hear with gladness and faith, hearts ready and willing to repent and follow the Lord Jesus in obedience. Help me to preach as I ought, boldly and clearly. 
as a dying man, unsure, to ever preach again, and for all of us to hear as a dying people, not promise to hear another sermon. We pray that you do good among us and that you glorify your name. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier this week, I came across a proclamation of President Abraham Lincoln that was issued in April of 1863, right when the Civil War, of course, was at its height. Lincoln and his party were picking up, ready for a new campaign, and he had issued a declaration for a national day of humiliation and prayer to be observed on April 30th of that year. And in the proclamation that went out to the states in America, it included these two sentences that were quite striking as I read them this week. The president wrote, intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power, as no other nation has grown but we have forgotten God. And I wonder if you happen to sit in here this morning and do not also run the risk of being too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of God's grace, too self-sufficient that you may have even forgotten the God who made you, And so what we want to look at this morning is a text that's going to make a radical claim on every one of our lives. It's going to call each one of us to do something that our culture in every way would not have any one of us do, which is declare that we are inadequate, that we are insufficient. And in so doing, it's going to call us to lift up our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ because he alone is able to save. And so that is really the main idea of what we want to look at in our 17 verses together this morning. The simple truth that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior for sinners. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior for sinners. So kids, do you know what it means that Jesus is all-sufficient? It means that Jesus is enough, but it also means that Jesus has everything you need for salvation. That he alone can save you from your sins. So even students, as you're in here this morning, I hope you will remember anew this morning the great truth that Jesus has all ability and authority over your life. And the call of Christ is to bow before him in faith and repentance. And you might even be in here this morning and wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. I do hope you might leave our time Uh, together in this study of God's Word for the first time realizing that Jesus Christ is the only one that can save you from your sin. That He has all wisdom to guide you. All goodness to supply you. All mercy to pardon you. All happiness to crown you. All strength to empower you. You need to see something of the fullness of Christ. And even for us as a church body here at Redeemer on a unique day, as later on in the service as we install Reverend Derek too and as assistant pastor in our congregation, I hope even this sermon would be an encouragement to Derek, an encouragement to us as a church body as we remember again Christ's provision 
and power for our life and ministry together. So the text breaks up into a couple different sections, but I want to walk through it under just two simple headings. Verses 1 through 9, we'll see the disciples sent with the Savior's power. And then verses 10 through 17, we'll see the crowd sitting at the Savior's table. So Jesus is all sufficient. We want to see the disciples sent with the Savior's power and then the crowd of thousands sitting at the Savior's table. If you've been with us in recent months as we've walked through Luke's Gospel, maybe you've noticed how in so many ways from chapter 2 on, the ministry of the kingdom that comes with this Messiah has really been an exclusive ministry. It's really just been carried about by Jesus' actions and words. But in many ways for the first time, and it's going to develop as Luke's gospel continues, we see him now commissioning others to join him in that ministry. Notice verse 1. Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Verse 2 says, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So look down at those verses again and notice the volley of verbs that Luke gives us. Do you see that? Jesus first calls the apostles, then he gives to them power and authority, and then he sends them. And kids, you need to know that this is always the order of life in Christ. He summons you, and then he sends you. And some of you are even in here today on a day when we have fellowship meal after the service, celebrating graduation, eight or nine of you in here among us, graduating from high school and from colleges. God has called you, gifted you, and now in ways that maybe you haven't understood before, he's sending you. Sending you to a new state, maybe, to a new campus, to a new people, And what does he want you to do as he's sending you? Well, look again at the verbs of verse 2. What does he send the apostles to do? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And the only reason they're going to be able to do this is because he's given them the power and authority to do that. They're going to preach the kingdom. I think we're right to believe in so many ways, just like they would have heard it from Jesus and heard of it from John the Baptist Their preaching program would have sounded something like, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah has come. The long-awaited King of kings. The Savior of mankind. He is finally here. And they're to go proclaiming the good news of the kingdom throughout the land. But they're also given power and authority to cast out demons. To cure diseases. Which were going to be, in many ways, attestations. Proof that the kingdom has indeed arrive. And I do think we always want to be careful when we walk through narratives like this uh, in the Gospels, is that this is a unique mission for the apostles here at this time. It's their first short-term mission trip, as you will, that Jesus is empowering them for. I think you can also think about it as a dress rehearsal of sorts for their apostolic ministry that we see throughout the rest of the New Testament. Once Jesus ascends into heaven, they're going to preach with power. And they're going to prove the gospel's truth by healing with authority. Anyone who has come to Christ in faith is called, gifted, and sent. So for us, even as a church, even though our ministry is not identical to that of the disciples in this passage, we nonetheless are called, gifted, 
and sent with the Spirit's power to minister in word, to minister in deed. Those of you graduates that the Lord is sending out, what kind of witness will you bear for Jesus Christ through your words and through your actions? And I want you to see the urgency notice of this mission. If you just scan your eyes through verses 3 through 4, you'll see Jesus give them more marching orders. They're not supposed to take anything with them. They're only supposed to even stay in one house per town that they go to, which would likely mean they're limiting the amount of time they're spending in one particular village because he's wanting them to go to town after town, to area after area. And he knows, doesn't he, that not everyone is going to receive the truth of this kingdom. Notice verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This was actually a common action in that ancient Jewish culture. If a Jew is ever going to leave Israel, is going to depart from the Holy Land and go out into Gentile regions, it was part and parcel of the Jewish law of the day that before he crossed back into God's chosen land, he was to shake out his feet of the dust, the Gentile dust that would have gotten underneath his sandals and between his or her toes. And it was this kind of symbolic declaration of not just separation, from the Gentile nations. And Jesus even means it here for a pronouncement of judgment. They have not received the truth. So shake the dust off your feet for they will be shaken in judgment at the coming of this Messiah. I was once listening to a very well-known and wonderful pastor, even around the world, talk about his struggles and lessons learned in ministry, and he was recounting the story of a church that actually had forced him out of their midst because he was too boldly uh, uh, declaring what we would call the doctrines of grace. And so when his resignation was finally received by the church, and he had packed up all his books from his study and loaded them into his suburban and crossed the parking lot for the last time, he stopped the car and he got out and shook off the dust from his feet in serious declaration of the hardness of heart of that people. And may we never pray that any minister or visiting preacher could ever come and preach from behind this pulpit and stop at the parking lot on his way out and shake the dust off his feet. That when God's word is proclaimed, when his son is lifted and honored, that he's received. So we should pray that Faith would continue to flourish in our midst, that repentance from sin would continue to thrive, that lives would be rooted on the Lord Jesus Christ, because when his missionaries and ministers and people are sent with his power, he means for you to bow in submission and faith to its truth. So you see in verse 6, off go the apostles, and they're doing this work everywhere. And evidently, they're having quite a bit of success because notice what we're told in verse 7. Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler there in Judea, he heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because some were saying John the Baptist, whom he beheaded, had been raised from the dead. So 
powerful was this ministry of the apostles. Other people are wondering if Elijah has finally arrived, as the Old Testament had prophesied, particularly at the end of Malachi. Or maybe it's just some other great prophet from old that has arisen among us. And so look at Herod's question in verse 9. Who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see Jesus. I tend to think that every faithful Christian church will have something of a doorbell ministry in its life together. And I think you know what I mean by it. You know, kids, if you go home later today, and sometime maybe around 4 or 5 o'clock, your doorbell rings, what's the first thing that comes through your head? Who is it? I wonder who's there. And I think every church that's faithfully serving and ministering with Christ's power will do that in its community. That the word is preached with power, mercy is extended with unrelenting compassion and tenderness, and people begin to notice what's going on over there. Who do they actually believe in? And then begin to seek out the one that is worshipped. So we have the apostles sent with the Savior's power, and now we will see the crowd sitting at the Savior's table. Because what verses 10 through 17, and the way Luke's put this together, what it in many ways does with the course of his narrative, is answer Herod's question. Who is this? Luke's gospel is written that you might have certainty about the things you have been taught. So what happens next? Notice verse 10. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And we don't know exactly where that is in relationship to Capernaum in this part of Galilee where Jesus would have been. It's likely several miles away, maybe three to five miles away in terms of a walk. So this was representing for Jesus and his apostles. They'd just come back from this very successful, very powerful mission trip. They're recounting all the stories of what they had seen, what they had heard, what they had said, what they had done. Surely exhausted at many levels, as some of you who have gone on such a trip might have known before. So Jesus Pulls them back, doesn't he? It's almost as though he goes on a retreat with his chosen 12 just for rest and being able to recuperate before the messianic mission continues. But as some of you might have experienced on your own vacations or holidays or retreats before, interruptions tend to come along much faster than you ever wished they would. If we look at verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them. And spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So I want you to see the truth of what was prophesied all the way back in Luke chapter 1 about this Savior. The tender mercy of Christ. In the midst of an unrelenting mission. Longing for rest. For recuperation. Here comes more need. And he doesn't say what? Don't you understand we need a break for just a little bit before we come back and work among you in power. He doesn't put up any sort of do not disturb sign in his ministry when there is a need there. Christ tenderly and mercifully meets it. Even Mark's account of this scene, Mark says Jesus looked out on the crowds with compassion as a sheep without a shepherd. Such is the mercy of Jesus Christ even in the midst of an unrelentingly busy Ministry, And so he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God just like he had sent the disciples and the apostles out to do. 
He heals people of their diseases. There was so much need going on here in Bethsaida that we're told that the day has long gone by and the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, you gotta, got to kick this crowd out of this desolate place because there's no food here. There's no lodging here. You need to tell them to go somewhere to find it. And do you look at what Jesus says in verse 13? You give them something to eat. And in the original, the accent there is on the you. No, no, I'm not sending them away. You sort out the problem. You take care of the matters that you have brought to my attention. And I think he's emphasizing it because he wants to show the disciples inadequacy. You could take it in a few different ways, but I tend to think it's quite likely that you had these 12 men coming back from a very fruitful mission. Probably then starting to be a little bit puffed up with their own ability. Look what we have said. Look what we have done. 5,000 people, they see, at least, are needing to be fed. Jesus says, well, why don't you guys go ahead and take care of it? And of course, they know they're insufficient and unable to do that. For look at what they respond with in verse 14, or the end of verse 13. They said, we have nothing more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy for all these people, which the other gospel writers would say would be the equivalent of about eight months worth of wages. We've just got five loaves of bread and two fish. What do you want us to do with these? If you grew up in the church like I did, you probably are quite familiar with this story. Making, maybe you can recall coloring sheets that are wanting you to illustrate the story of the feeding of the 5,000 or flannel graphs that were showing you and, and picture what was going on there. And at least I have in mind the days past where I was always coming across an illustration of this story and what the disciples brought to Jesus was this big basket that had five big loaves of, of bread and five big old fish that were sticking their heads and flopping out of this basket so full were these fish. And if you have that in mind and have often thought about this scene in that way, understand that you're actually quite off with what's going on here. Uh, we find out in the New Testament that these are barley loaves, which was the poorest bread. So the poorest people ate barley loaves. And they would be baked into a cake that would be little more than the size of a normal cupcake in our time. So they got five of those. And then you've got two fish that were normally just kind of spread over those little barley cakes to give some type of a salty flavor. So it's why when he was preaching on this miracle, Charles Spurgeon said, these biscuits and sardines <laughs> were a very small capital indeed on which to conduct the business of feeding 5,000 persons. And of course, we're told, aren't we, if you glance down at the text in verse 14, there are 5,000 men there. Maybe then by conservative estimates, there's at least 15,000 people there on the countryside. Five simple biscuits two small sardines. What can these do to feed this people? Well, they put them in the hands of Jesus Christ, don't they? He breaks them up into groups of 50, and in doing so, notice verse 16, he took the five loaves and two fish, looked up to heaven, and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Don't you wonder what the disciples must have been thinking at that moment? Ever imagine what's going through their mind when Jesus gives them these simple pieces of bread and fish to go now disperse among the entire thousands before them? 
I wonder if some of you have ever played a game called Bigger and Better uh, before. It's a game where you take something small, go knock on a stranger's door, and say, will you give me something bigger and better for this? And we did this once when I was a student pastor. We were trying to basically get a bunch of stuff, hopefully much better than junk, to serve this ministry in our local city that was caring for the poor. And so I gathered the students together one day. It was about 120 of them, broke them up into groups of 12, and gave each group a toothpick and said, you've got an hour and a half to see what you can get for this toothpick. 90 minutes went by. Soon the pickup trucks began to parade back into the church parking lot, and it was overflowing with stuff. We got lots of actually pretty decent stuff, a mint-conditioned Bowflex that someone apparently had never put to good use. We got three refrigerators, two of which were almost in fantastic condition. We got four or five very large couches, numerous other items of furniture that could be of great use to the people. These 12 toothpicks had surely multiplied into something bigger and better. And you see what happens with simple, humble, meager offerings in the hands of Christ? Five loaves and two fish. Look at verse 17. And the entire crowd ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. That number 12 signaling for us once again that Jesus is reconstituting the people of Israel, that he's recommissioning a 12 among whom the true Israel will now come forth as the kingdom has finally dawned. This is the all-sufficient Savior for sinners like you and me. He sends out His people with power. And when they sit at His table, they are satisfied. So I told you last week, students, you might remember this, that whenever you come to a miracle in a gospel of Jesus Christ, I, I want you to think of those miracles like a window. Do you remember what I said? You know, no one builds a window. You can kind of look at the ones we have around this building. No one has put in that window in order for us to just stare at it. We're meant to see through it to what's on the other side. And in the exact same way, the gospel writers and the Spirit wants us to see the miracles of Jesus as a window into who He is. We're not meant to just merely stare at the miracle but look through it to what it tells us about who Jesus is. And we don't have to wonder about what this miracle says about who Jesus is, do we? We read it earlier this morning in John chapter 6 because Jesus tells us what the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is all about. He says, I am the bread of life. If anyone hungers and comes to me, he will never hunger again. Just as Moses fed the people in the wilderness wanderings of the Old Testament, this manna sent from heaven by God, Jesus is saying that was just a type, that was just a shadow, that was just a picture of me, the true bread who comes to satisfy any person who trusts in me. So it tells us, of course, that he's the bread of life, but if you even just kind of notice the echoes from other points of power related to the Messiah's identity in this passage, you would also see, especially when you combine it with the other gospel accounts, it also tells us Jesus is the true shepherd who has mercy on the sheep. He is the true and greater prophet Moses who leads God's people through the wilderness, providing for them all the sustenance they require. He is the true host of the messianic banquet that lays a meal before his people that satisfies them. This is the all-sufficient Savior for sinners like you and me. So as we begin to close, I just want to think together 
about two implications of Christ's all-sufficiency according to our text. Number one, Jesus' all-sufficiency means He can supply for your every need. His all-sufficiency means He can supply for your every need. Because don't we know it that all of us come in here this morning, probably in ways that we might not be willing to admit publicly, overflowing with needs. I wonder what needs you have before the Lord today. Have you come to Christ and trusting that He can meet them for you? And it's quite striking, isn't it? He even sends out these 12 apostles with nothing for their mission. And they're going to have every need met. Students, some of you are being sent out to a new campus, to a new state, to a new environment. Welcome or not so much to Christianity. Who is going to supply you with strength? Supply you with wisdom? Supply you with discernment to stay rooted in Christ? Well, you look on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in here today and you're hungry, He will meet your hunger. If you're in here today and you need truth, He will illuminate the path. If you're in here today and you need shelter, He will be your refuge. If you're in here today and you need forgiveness, He will be the pardoning power of grace. Every need that you have, this all-sufficient Savior can supply for it because of who He is. So Jesus' all-sufficiency means that He can supply for your every need, but it also means that He can satisfy your deepest need. Because kids, what is your deepest need? If any of you are in this room, you may be the ones uniquely saying, I don't have many needs in my life. Well, kids, do remember that the Bible says you have a very deep need to be saved from your sin. That the greatest need that any of us can come before the Lord with is to be saved from the judgment and death that our sin deserves. And you might even be in here this morning and you're seeking after the Lord, but you've yet to close with Him, clinging to Christ in faith. I want you to know that there is another time, Lord willing, we will see this sometime in 2019, when Jesus took bread, broke it, and blessed it. Do you remember that? The night in the upper room when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. He blessed it and broke it. And what did he say? This is my body. This is my body that is about to be bruised, beaten, bloodied in your place. This is my body that will hang on the cursed tree so that by looking upon it in faith, you might be cleansed and made righteous in God's sight. This is my body laid in the grave to rise again three days later, once and for all defeating sin, Satan, and death. This is my body that will ascend to the Father's right hand in heaven to rule and reign in power, ministering to the church. This is my body that satisfies your deepest need. When you sit at the Savior's table, it's not long after that He will send you out with His power. And as He sends you out, He'll supply for your needs. And He'll satisfy even your greatest need. Because He is the all-sufficient Savior for sinners. Just like you and me. Now let us pray together. Father, we do...
come to you and bow before you even now, recognizing that we are insufficient and inadequate, that there is nothing that we can do, no wisdom that we possess, no strength that we can offer that would cleanse us from our sin. And so, Lord, we are renewed in our gratitude for your provision of your Son, Jesus Christ. His perfect ability and authority. His all-sufficient character that laid down its life in our place. So I pray that you would minister to each one of the individuals in this room, the homes and families represented to satisfy and supply for their needs. Lord, help us to lean on and look to Jesus Christ with renewed faith and repentance this week. And we are grateful for the incredible salvation and wonderful mercies that he continues to show us. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.